Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and so it is time to talk a little bit about science and um, skepticism, mostly science tonight. And so, yeah, as always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Now, I want to start tonight by saying happy winter solstice to you all. The winter solstice officially took place uh, technically at 523 uh, this evening, Eastern Standard Time. And so the winter solstice is the day when the sun's high point in the sky, or zenith, reaches its minimum on the horizon. And that's why the day is so short. Now, it would be fairly bright tonight if we weren't still under full cloud cover from today's soaking rains, uh, (laughs) with the full moon scheduled to peak tomorrow night. And so if we were able to see it, it would basically look full. And what's cool about this, even though we unfortunately can't share in it, silly weather, um, the next time the moon will be peaking towards full on the winter solstice will be in 2094. That's kind of crazy. And also at this time, the Ursid meteor shower is peaking. But of course, we probably won't be able to see that either between the clouds. And even if we could have uh, less cloud cover, the moon would have actually probably drowned them out as well. The Ursid is not the best meteor shower uh, to see, especially around here. Of course, we seem to be missing a lot of meteor showers due to clouds lately, which, you know, hasn't made me grumpy at all. (laughs) But oh, well. And so it means... Most importantly, as far as I'm concerned, that starting tomorrow, Saturday, we will start getting a bit more sunlight every day until we reach the summer solstice. So it is very exciting. And so, yeah. And in fact, today will actually last for 24 hours and 30 seconds. That's because we are actually approaching the closest point to the sun in the Earth's elliptical orbit. That means that we're basically going a bit faster than we normally would um, because of the gravitational pull of the sun. And so it will take a few extra seconds for the rotation to match the orbit. Uh, And of course, there is that paradoxical idea that, you know, technically we are closest to the sun that we get during uh, the rotation of the Earth, and yet it is winter here. Um, But of course, that's because of the axis. Um, (laughs) So, you know, there's that sort of um, atheist joke that, you know, the axis, uh, that um, axial tilt is the reason for the season. (laughs) Um, So yeah, so we are currently tilted away from the sun, uh, which is why we're getting less direct sunlight. And that's why we have winter, um, because of the tilt of the orbit, not or because of the tilt of the Earth, not because of our place in the orbit around the sun. Okay, 
So I don't want to spend too much time on space and and the universe and things like that uh, again this week since we did a lot last week. But I do want to give an update on NASA's InSight Lander uh, because that is pretty much the premier news right now. And uh, obviously, we will also have an update either next week or the week after on um, the... Um, I've completely blanked, I'm sorry, uh, on Ultima Thule, which is New Horizons. There we go. <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, which New Horizons will be whizzing past at, uh, I believe it's going to be on the 31st. So we'll have to be in two weeks that we'll talk about that. Okay, but let's talk about Insight because Insight has done very cool things already. It has deployed the first of its two instruments that will need to be actually on the Martian surface in order to complete their work. Insight's timetable of activities on Mars has gone better than we hoped, said Insight project manager Tom Hoffman, uh, who is based at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL. And... So he goes on to say, getting the seismometer safely on the ground is an awesome Christmas present. <laughs> and so uh, in order to make sure that they had the best possible chance at getting it right, the NASA team actually tested the commands for the lander to use the, uh, in order to use the probes of the robotic arm on a model in a test bed at JPL. So basically what they have is they have kind of a test lander uh, in a sort of sand pit. I was watching a little video about it, of them doing a bit of it. And so it was really cool. They have this uh, pit where they have a sand. And what they do is those pictures, those first pictures that they took of the Martian um, surface by the uh, lander, they actually wear augmented reality glasses. And so they create, they, they're looking at what is the actual Martian surface and they're smoothing and and manipulating the sand in their test pit to look exactly like what those pictures brought back. It's very cool um, and extremely geeky. <laughs> and uh, so they analyzed the uh, first images to best place the to find the best place to deploy the seismometer. And eventually, once they had done all of the uh, testing and sent all of those um, signals to the test robotic arm, they then went ahead and sent the commands to the lander on Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, on Tuesday and then on Wednesday, the 19th, the seismometer was placed onto the Martian surface directly in front of the lander at just about the full reach of the arm, so just about five feet away from it. Seismometer deployment is an important is as important as landing InSight on Mars, said InSight Principal Investigator Bruce Bannert, also at JPL. The seismometer is the highest priority priority instrument on InSight. We need it in order to complete about three quarters of our science objectives. So that's pretty excellent that pretty much everything is going to plan so far with it. Now the next step is actually to level the instrument because it is currently 
on the ground, but that ground is tilted between two and three degrees. But of course, again, this is kind of sandy, uh, very sort of malleable ground, so it should be pretty easy for them to actually level out the instrument. And then once that's done, the team will begin to be able to get data. Now, that initial data will be analyzed by a whole bunch of different people. So there'll be a team of engineers and scientists at JPL, uh, the French National Space Agency, Agency's Centre National d'Etudes Spatiales, <laughs> uh, or Spatiales, Spatiales, my French is rusty, uh, or the CNES, and other institutions affiliated with the SICE team. And so what they'll do is they will check the quality of the data and adjust, if necessary, the seismometer's long wire-lined tether to reduce any noise that is traveling along its route. Now, once the data signal is as clean as they can get it, uh, hopefully in early January, the engineers will command the robotic arm to place the wind and thermal shield over the seismometer to stabilize the area around the sensors. And if all goes well with that, they will then deploy the HP3 heat probe onto the surface in late January on the east side of the lander, again around five feet away. That's the other main um, probe that they are putting into the actual Martian surface. We look forward to popping some champagne when we start to get data from Insight's seismometer on the ground, Bernard added. I have a bottle ready for the occasion. <laughs> so that is super exciting. And we've also, we've already gotten some cool things. So for instance, uh, both the seismometer and um, the one of the other instruments on uh, Insight has already recorded the Martian wind. Um, and so that's really cool to be able to hear the Martian wind. I didn't pull the sound clip for tonight because it is a little bit just, it is just kind of wind rushing. It almost sounds like static, but um, I'll definitely post that on the Facebook as well. And so, yeah, it's really cool to listen to wind on another planet. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's just so cool. Um, and again, I am so there for these kinds of unmanned uh, space exploration uh projects. I think they're very cool and I think it's very exciting. Okay, so now we are going to switch gears pretty much completely. Uh, we're going to go from very sort of hard uh, science with, you know, very definite outcomes to we're going to talk a little bit about some psychology for for a little bit. Now, you know, we can talk about uh, the issues with psychology in general, and you know, there are problems with it. But I thought it was important to talk about these two studies that have come out recently, because I think it's a good time of year to talk about this sort of thing. So the first study is about loneliness. And so of course, loneliness is a very complicated, not fully understood human emotion. But much of what we do know about how it affects people is unsurprisingly disturbing. It's, it's not good. <laughs> and so a new study conducted by geriatric neuropsychiatrist Dilip Jest and colleagues from the University of California San Diego Medi School of Medicine 
uh, surveyed a group of 340 adults in San Diego, California, who ranged in age from 17 to 101. And so what they did was they assessed the subjects with a series of tests and found that 76% had moderate high levels of loneliness or moderate to high levels of loneliness. Now, this is a higher rate than previous studies had found. Uh, Previous studies had found that the rate was anywhere from 17 to 57% in a sort of general U.S. population that actually experienced high levels of loneliness. The group noted that three age, age ranges seemed to be most affected, the late 20s, mid 50s, and late 80s. And of course, those sorts of time periods make sense, uh, uh, as they explain, because in your late 20s, you're often making important decisions, you're often settling down and losing, you know, parts of your connections. A lot of people in their late 20s lose a lot of college friends and things like that because they just drift away. Uh, the mid-50s is often characterized by, uh, you know, the infamous midlife crisis. And in the late 80s, that also makes sense because unfortunately, a lot of people are uh, losing the people in their life to um, death. And also, you know, unfortunately, we're not so great about uh, taking care of our elders in this country necessarily. Um, And so it can be really hard. Now, the researchers note that this, these results are noteworthy because the participants in this study were not considered to be at high risk for moderate to severe loneliness. They didn't have major physical disorders, nor did they suffer from significant mental illnesses such as depression or schizophrenia, in which you might expect loneliness to be problematic, said Jest. Though they were Though there were clear demographic limitations to the group, these participants were, generally speaking, regular people. And so that's, um, that's kind of disturbing, obviously. Now, they were assessed with multiple psychological tests, including the 20-point UCLA Loneliness Scale, version 3, <laughs> which is a four-item self-reported measure of social isolation developed by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. They were also assessed with the San Diego Wisdom Scale, which was developed by Justin colleagues as a measure of the neurobiological and psychosocial elements of the trait of wisdom. So the wisdom test looks at factors such as prosocial attitudes, emotional regulation, reflection, and self-understanding, and tolerance. And so they found that there was actually a strong inverse relationship between the measures of wisdom and loneliness. That may be due to the fact that behaviors which define wisdom, such as empathy, compassion, emotional regulation, self-reflection, effectively counter or prevent serious loneliness, explains first author of the study, Dr. Ellen Lee. Now, studies have shown that loneliness can disrupt sleep, increase stress, and even weaken a person's immune system. There are actually some, including former U.S. General Uh, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who argued that the impact on health could be comparable to that of smoking. 
Loneliness seems to be associated with everything bad, Dr. Lee explained. It's linked to poor mental health, substance abuse, cognitive impairment, and worse physical health, including malnutrition, hypertension, and disrupted sleep. Now, of course, the problem is also that we just don't yet have enough of a good understanding of the full scope of the situation in order to have really good specific advice for those who are lonely. We need to think about loneliness differently. It's not about social isolation, just said. Just said. A person can be alone and not feel lonely, while a person can be in a crowd and feel alone. We need to find solutions and interventions that help connect people that help them to become wiser. So, you know, this holiday season, uh, it might be a good time to check in with friends and family, be a little more attentive to them, or reach out if you yourself are feeling lonely. I know there have been times when I've been deeply lonely, even when I had friends and loved ones who I could have reached out to. But this is the season where maybe it's easier, maybe it's harder, I don't know, uh, to reach out. But if you are feeling lonely and you really can, uh, you know, summon up the courage to reach out, do. Um, because this can also be a time of year where people feel really depressed and uh, it's just good to try and reach out to people and connect and have those sorts of connections that really do help people be able to maintain a uh, sort of at least baseline uh, feeling of okayness. Um, and obviously, again, this is not referring to people with actual clinical depression and things like that. Obviously, people like that should be also trying, if they can, to reach out. But as you know, um, that can be very hard for people with clinical depression. I know uh, that very well. And so, um, yeah, but it's the people who, you know, you normally think would be, you know, quote unquote normal, uh, who could also be having these issues and it could really be affecting them in ways they don't even realize. Okay. So now let us switch and actually talk about a sort of corollary, not it, it definitely uh, is in the same realm of ideas about how to feel better about the world if you can. And so this is actually a study about happiness. Uh, so basically what science has to say about it. And so Iris Mouse, now at UC Berkeley, was one of the first psychologists to really study happiness from a scientific perspective. Wherever you look, you see books about how happiness is good for you and how you basically should make yourself happier, almost as, as a duty, she said. People might, be, might set very high standards for their own happiness as a function of this. They may think they should be happy all the time or extremely happy, and that can set people up to feel disappointed with themselves, that they fall short, and that could have these self-defeating effects. And so she set out to test how, for instance, reading about or thinking about happiness might affect a person's ability to actually be happy. And so preliminary work showed uh, no particular gender variance in happiness values. 
And so Mouse and colleagues set up an experimental protocol using a detailed questionnaire, which asked female participants to rate themselves on ideas such as how happy I am at any moment says a lot about my how worthwhile my life is. If I don't feel happy, maybe there is something wrong with me. And I am concerned about my happiness even when I feel happy. And so there were a series of these that uh, the participants would rate their uh, agreement with on a scale from one to nine. And so when assessing the results from these women, they found that those who were most affirmative with these statements tended to have the least amount of overall satisfaction with their level of happiness. Now, this only affected those with a baseline of emotions. And so, for instance, those who had experienced recent trauma or stress weren't made even less happy by their ideas on happiness. Um, and so at least that's good news. <laughs> and so this first group consisted of 59 female participants with a mean age of 37.6 from the Denver metro area who were recruited using postings in online forums or through flyers in areas such as laundromats and local hospitals. Because there didn't seem to be a gender variance, they chose only women in order to have a more homologous group sample. Now, all participants were deemed to have had a stressful life event sometime in the last six months, something such as divorce, death in the family, or injury to self. And so, as with most psychological test pools, uh, there were some very obvious, um, you know, constraints. So, for instance, the group skewed heavily European-American, with 81% self-reporting that background. And so, of course... Uh, we could have an hours-long discussion about the problematic nature of extrapolating the findings of psychological experiments to populations that do not identify as European-American, uh, but that's for another day. And, uh, you know, the fact is that there is still a fairly large amount of people to whom this is pretty directly applicable uh, because they do fall into that category, even though uh, we definitely need to find better ways to serve people who don't fall into that category. Um, and there's multiple issues that are surrounding that. And again, we could talk about that for hours. Um, but let's just push on today with uh, talking about this in general. And so in the second study, the researchers looked at the effects of priming on the subjects. 70 women with a mean age of 21.1 years with a 57.7% ratio of European Americans. Uh, this time it was clearly taken from co a college setting. So these were college students. So that's why you have a uh, younger ratio of ages and a... Uh, less high ratio of uh, basically white women. Uh, and so they were asked to read a fake newspaper article on either happiness or um, the, or a, a control group was given a different article. Now, one participant, interestingly, actually figured out the protocol. Uh, she figured out what was going on. And so they ended up having to exclude her. <laughs> I would probably be that person. <laughs> Anyways, 
They were then asked to watch a sad movie clip or a happy movie clip. Now, members of the control group were given, again, the same article to read, but references to happiness were actually replaced with making accurate judgments. They found that those who read the article on happiness were less likely to be happy after watching the happy movie clip than those in the control group. Now, very little difference was found between the two groups who watched the sad movie clip. And so the researchers concluded that our findings suggest that the paradoxical effects of valuing happiness are not due to pursuing happiness as a goal or awareness of it, but rather to how people evaluate their progress towards this goal. And so in that second study, leading participants um, in study two, leading participants to value happiness more increased their attempts to feel more positively, regardless of clip of film clip valence. Yet only participants who also watched a happy film clip felt disappointed and ended up feeling less happy. This suggests that attempts to feel happier or greater awareness is awareness of one's happiness by themselves do not necessarily lead to less happiness. Rather, it appears to be the negative evaluation of one's self-regulatory attempts that appear impair happiness, and this is most likely in contexts perceived to be conducive to happiness. Now, all of that is to say that uh, basically what it comes down to is if you are engaging in something that you know should make you happy, and you know that it should make you happy, you're much more likely to sort of self uh consider and self-criticize whether or not the thing that's supposed to make you happy is making you happy enough. And so then, of course, you end up less happy because you're struggling with this idea of, is this making me happy enough? Because I know it should be making me happy. (laughs) So yeah. And so they do go on to caution, though, that again, these are preliminary results and that other non-measured mediators could be at work as well. But again, basically, the overall idea seems to be that you should be a little less concerned about your level of happiness and just enjoy the moment as it takes you when you're in a pleasurable situation, which is, of course, I know, much easier said than done. Uh, But, you know, just try not to be too hard on yourself and not to judge your own happiness or situation by those around you. That is a big part of it. And again, of course, easier said than done. All right. Um, with that, let us take a uh, short break and then we are going to switch gears again uh, back to a more traditional scientific discovery. Uh, and so, yeah, hang on for a moment while we do some PSAs and some show promos. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, 
but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking. Healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Outbreaks of whooping cough or pertussis are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Drum and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on the Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. Never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Sure. Humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. I Heart J-Rock with DJ Sakura is your weekly two-hour show devoted to rock music from Japan. Join me on Saturday nights, 10 p.m. to midnight. I'll be playing the very best and the newest J-Rock, J-Pop, J-Metal, VK, you name it, I'll play it as long as it's from Japan. Thank you. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Okay, we are back. And so now we, again, like I said, are going to switch gears. And uh, so I do want to give a little bit of a content warning. Uh, we are going to be talking about a snake. So if that worries you, uh, feel free to, uh, you know, change the channel for a moment. And, uh, so yeah, but it's also an example of a perennial favorite topic on this show, which is the fact that museums are filled with discoveries yet to be made in their back rooms and storage areas. Um, and so of course, that is one of those things that I'm constantly fascinated by the fact that we have all of this knowledge that we can just, you know, someone can just sit in a storage room in a museum and just discover so many interesting things. 
Okay, so now that we've given people a chance to uh, bow out if they want, let us talk about a new kind of snake that was discovered hiding in a museum collection. So, herpetologists discovered the new snake inside the stomach of a Central American coral snake. Now, this is unusual, but what was even more unusual is that the specimen had actually been preserved and in storage for over 40 years. Now, because scientists are delightfully dorky, the paper discussing the new find is called Coddles and Calices, the Curious Case of a Consumed Chiapin Colibroid. <laughs> and so the new snake has been named Synapsis um, Enigma, or the Mysterious Dinner Snake. <laughs> Again, science are awesome dorks. Now, both snakes originate from the Mexican state of Chiapas, where in 1976, Julio Ornelas Martinez recovered the coral snake from the forest of Cerro Ball. Now, when researchers opened up the snake, they did realize it was unusual, but they set it aside for later study at the museum. And so that's what herpetologist Jonathan Campbell of the University of Texas and its colleagues have now done some 40 years later. Now, the new species is rather small. It's a fully grown male and only around 10 inches long, but it has distinctive features, including large undivided plates on the underside of its tail a unique shape, shape and covering of its hemipenis, and the shape of the skull. Now, it has relatively plain coloration, and the elongated skull, uh, between the relatively plain coloration and the elongated skull, the researchers believe it may be a burrowing snake that spends the majority of its time underground. However, there actually are some things that make this snake unique if it is a borrowing snake. The dorsal color is rather unremarkable, being uniformly pale brown, the researchers wrote in their paper. This color and lack of dorsal pattern is not unusual for borrowing species. However, the ventrals are marked with three series of dark rectangular to triangular markings forming essentially three stripes for the length of the body, and the subcaudals are marked with a single mid-ventral band extending the length of the tail. Why a secretive burrowing snake would have such a distinctive ventral pattern is unknown. The ventral pattern is not replicated in any other Middle American snake. So, pretty interesting. Now, in addition, while living in a forest habitat would suggest a diet of soft-bodied prey like slugs and earthworms, the teeth and mouth of the snake actually resemble snakes that feed on more chitinous prey like insects, centipedes, and arthropods um, with harder bodies. Now, of course, the real challenge to researchers is to find a living specimen. Many such species are very cryptic and hard to find, which is why it hasn't been found, even though it's presumably out there. And they do think it might absolutely still be out there and simply spends enough time underground that it's eluded herpetologists and other specimen collectors. This provides evidence of just how secretive some snakes can be, Campbell told National Geographic. 
combine their elusive habitats, uh, their elusive habits with restricted ranges, and some snakes do not turn up often. So yeah, it could totally still be out there and we just haven't ever come across it. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about something else that not everyone loves. Uh, let's talk about a new experiment with a true slime mold amoeba. Now, I love slime mold. Uh, I know that that's not a popular opinion necessarily, uh, but slime molds are actually totally fascinating. Um, but anyways, let's talk about this particular uh, experiment. A group from Kyo University in Japan decided to test the ability of the amoebas against a classic test for algorithms. And so they found that the slime mold amoeba solved the problem in a totally different and potentially even more efficient way than most algorithms as the problem becomes more complex. Now, it isn't faster, obviously. Amoebas are very slow-moving creatures, but they were able to process the problem linearly, even as the problem increased in complexity exponentially. And so the problem the researchers asked the slime mold to solve was the traveling salesman problem, or TPS. This is an optimization problem which requires an algorithm to look at a list of cities and find the shortest route with each city only being visited once. And so with four cities, there are only three possible routes to choose from. Pretty simple. But with eight cities, the complexity, which is again exponential, jumps to 2,520 routes. And so the researchers, the, the researchers were surprised that the time between solving the four city problem and the eight city problem for the slime mold was linear. Basically, it took twice as much time uh, to solve it rather than it taking an exponentially longer amount of time to solve it. In this study, we show that the time taken by Plasmodium to find a reasonable, high-quality TSP solution grows linearly as the problem size increases from 4 to 8, the researchers wrote in their paper in the Royal Society Open Science. These results may lead to the development of novel analog computer computers enabling approximate solutions of complex optimization problems in linear time. And so how did the slime mold actually show the researchers the solutions it came to? Basically, by moving along a series of 64 different narrow channels, eight cities each with eight possible next moves, which were placed in a round plate on top of agar. And so in order to access the nutritive agar, the amoeba must enter the channels. The researchers used light cues, which amoebas, they don't like the light, uh, to illuminate certain channels that were either too far apart or were already tried in order to stop it from entering several channels at once and to aid in optimization. So for instance, mimicking the, the memory that an algorithm would have. Now, computers can also solve the problem in a linear amount of time, but the amoebas did it in a unique way. They tested new body shapes at a constant rate while also processing opti optical feedback, which is a mechanism that computers could learn from. 
the researchers believed that the amoebas could have solved problems with even more cities, but the researchers couldn't create a plate large enough to simulate the problem because, again, it uh, expands exponentially. So if you add more cities, you it just it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and so, yeah, while we understand some of the mechanisms that take place in order for the amoeba to solve this problem, others are still unknown. The mechanism by which the amoeba maintains the quality of the approximate solution, that is the short root length, remains a mystery, team leader Masashi Aono told Lisa Zaiga over at physics.org. But this sort of work with amoebas is potentially a new route for researchers to find novel solutions to classic problems in uh, algorithms, such as the constraint satisfaction problem, Boolean satisf satisfiability problem, and even perhaps algorithms for the movements of multi-legged robots. The KO team cites others who are working with amoebas to look for new ways to solve these problems. So yeah, it's very cool that there are these uh, basically computer scientists who are looking at amoebas and seeing how they can actually solve the problems of um, dealing with these kinds of uh, problems by doing it using their actual like bodies. Um, and so yeah, slime molds are super interesting. There are all sorts of other experiments that people have done with slime molds that show that they're very, very weirdly interesting and can do things that we, again, still don't necessarily understand how they do it. Um, so it is pretty interesting. Okay, so let us move on now and discuss pterosaurs. And so these were the amazing rulers of the skies in the time of dinosaurs. These winged reptiles, distant cousins of dinosaurs, ranged in size from the ranged in size from the size of modern birds all the way up to the huge Quetzalcoatlus, which had a wingspan up to 50 feet. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Um, there are, uh, you can see pictures, and I'll try and find one and paste it, um, post it on the Facebook, that uh, there, someone made a model of it, and you can see sort of a person standing next to the model, and it's still mind-blowing that something that big ever existed, and especially ever flew. And it's pretty, you know, there's pretty solid evidence that all of these guys flew. And so, yeah, it's pretty insane to think of a animal with a 50-foot wingspan flying. I mean, grant you, you know, obviously we have fixed wing planes that do that, but it's just, it's just crazy. Uh, Quetzalcoatlus is just, it's, it's mind blowing. Um, and of course there have been other huge, uh, birds as well, but that one is really sort of the, the granddaddy of them all. <laughs> now we generally think of them as having been sort of leather winged with reptile like skin. And of course this is a problem um, that we are constantly dealing with when it comes to 
animals uh, from the age of dinosaurs where, uh, you know, when I was a kid, they were all considered to be these very reptile looking guys. Uh, you know, they all had reptile skin. None of them were uh, thought to have had any kind of feathers or anything like that. Um, you know, they were all considered to be sort of um, cold blooded, slow moving uh, for all of the um, larger dinosaurs. And, you know, even things like, um, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but there was a, um, Oviraptor. And so Oviraptor, uh, they originally used to think that it was basically this tiny little dinosaur that would go around and steal other dinosaurs' eggs. And so they called it the Oviraptor, the egg raptor. Um, and then it turned out that as we looked more, we realized that it wasn't stealing the eggs, that it was sitting on a nest of eggs. <laughs> and so, yeah, things like that. We're constantly changing our idea about um, what dinosaurs were like, what pterosaurs were like, what everything in this time period was like. And I think it's really cool. Um and so, for instance, there's also another um, really interesting thought process about how we sort of how we sort of depict dinosaurs and other animals. And so um, there's still a lot of debate about that, about, you know, how do you, um, you know, look at bones and then extrapolate from bones, you know, how big something was, because, you know, someone, if you think about it, like, you know, if you humans all have sort of roughly the same kind of skeleton, but we come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes uh, as for as far as being, you know, skinny or uh, fat or, you know, where are sort of, uh, you know, the bits of us that are fleshy, uh, you know, how big they are and things like that. And so I just always think it's fascinating, the idea of trying to depict ancient animals um, only from their bones. But anyways, that's a super digression. Um, and so let's get back to, uh, the paper. And so, uh, basically there is new evidence from this team that suggests that some of these pterosaurs might have had proto feathers and basically what could be considered fur. And so, uh, the new research was published in the December 17th issue of Nature, Ecology, and Evolution by paleontologist Zijiao Yang and colleagues at the Nanjing University of China. And so they report that they have identified four types of filaments called pycnofibers on two fossil pterosaur specimens from the mid-Jurassic period between 165 and 160 million years ago. Now, one kind was a single smooth filament that covered the body of the animals and may have kept them warm, similar again to modern fur. The other fibers appeared to be more feather-like, with structures branching from different parts of a central fiber. These branching fibers were found only in certain areas, such as the head, wings, or tail. Now, the researchers suggest that the fil filaments were used in things like Again, thermoregulation, tactile sensing, signaling, and aerodynamics. What's unknown is whether these fibers evolved independently of those found on dinosaurs, or if the common ancestor of both dinosaurs and pterosaurs, 
archosaurs actually had feather-like filaments, which would push the development of feathers back into the Triassic. This discovery shows that feathers originated much deeper in time and presumably evolved first for insulation, said paleontologist Mike Benton of the University of Bristol, Bristol in the UK, uh, co-lead author of the study. That tends to confirm that warm-bloodedness originated much earlier than we had thought and in a much wider group of dinosaurs and their relatives. Now, again, this is another huge thing where we have switched to believing that most dinosaurs probably actually were warm-blooded. And so both the presence of fibers for insulation and also the high growth rate of both pterosaurs and dinosaurs have led most researchers to suggest that they were, in fact, warm-blooded. Now, however, <laughs> um, as with most things, not everyone always agrees on interpretations like this, and so some other researchers are not so sold on their interpretation. I would challenge nearly all their interpretations of the structures. They are not hairs at all, but structural fibers found inside the wings of pterosaurs also known as actinofibrils, said pterosaur researcher David Unwin at the University of Leicester in the UK, who was not part of the study. They discovered lots of hair-like structures, but don't report any f wing fibers. I find that problematic. Now, um, Unwin told the scientists that he suspects these fibers are likely to be present, but have been mislabeled as feathers. Now, However, the researchers have pushed back on this interpretation. Benton notes that actinofibrils occur only in the wing membranes, whereas the structures we describe occur sparsely on the wings, but primarily over the rest of the body. And so hopefully more specimens will be found, which will help illuminate more about the evidence one way or another. Uh, for right now, though, I am going to enjoy that artist rendering of a fuzzy pterosaur, which again, I will link to on the uh, Facebook page. And so, um, yeah, it is very cute. Um, I'm not going to lie. It is adorable. Okay, so let us finish up tonight with one more story about a pterosaur. Uh, and so this paper in the journal Peer J uh, is about a completely different situation. This is a really like a very, very sort of dynamic thing that happened. Um, and so what they did was they found a shark tooth embedded in the 80 million year old cervical vertebrae of the large flying reptile called Pteranodon. And so Pteranodon is kind of the the kind of premier one that most people know about in the pterosaurs. Um, it's certainly the one that I was most familiar with as someone growing up and being very interested in dinosaurs. Um, and so uh, this is from the late Cretaceous. And this is a time when North America was basically uh, cut in half by a giant uh inland sea called the Western Interior Seaway. It went all the way from the Gulf of Mexico to Canada. And so that's why we find all these amazing fossils in the American uh, West is because there was 
a lot of activity going on here. And so this specimen was excavated way back in the 1960s. Again, another one of these species that was, you know, kind of in a museum waiting to be discovered. And uh, so it was in the Los Angeles County National Natural History Museum uh, until the University of Southern California's Dr. Michael Habib and his colleagues noticed it and decided to study it. And one of the things that they wanted to look at uh, was about this idea that it showed an actual predation event. Uh, because it's super rare. Of more than 1,100 specimens of pterodon, uh, only seven or less than 1% show evidence of predator-prey interactions. And so what they had to do first was to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, a mistake, uh, you know, that it wasn't just kind of in the same bedding and kind of got... Uh, sort of cemented onto it in that way. Uh, and then they didn't. They realized that it was actually stuck between ridges in the neck vertebrae, making it clear evidence of the bite. Now, these pterodons were a little bit different from our fuzzy friends. Uh, they were actually, uh, they had a wingspan of around 18 feet, uh, would have weighed around 100 pounds, and they had the big conspicuous crested skull uh, that we often associate with um, pterodons. And so it turns out that, you know, they were pretty good at what they did. They could land and take off in water, and they really enjoyed uh, eating fish, which is something that um, we've always known. But they weren't so good at actually getting off of the water. It did take them a while, we figure. And so uh, a large mackerel shark apparently uh, managed to actually get this uh, pterosaur and take a bite out of its neck. Um, and so, of course, Another reason why this is so unique is that usually when that happened, it would have shattered the bones because this was a, um, the mackerel shark is basically, uh, would have been comparable to today's great white, even though they're not particularly closely related. Um, and so, uh, it just happened that, uh, sort of the paleontologist got lucky, uh, that it's, stuck on a particularly bony part of the neck, which led us to eventually be able to actually find it. And so, of course, again, they think that this probably happened when it was sitting on top of the water, kind of trying to figure out how to get out. And then the shark kind of came along and was like, crunch. And so, yeah, very interesting, but also important Understanding the ecology of these animals is important to understanding life on Earth throughout time, Dr. Habib said. Are there sharks today that hunt seabirds? Yes, there are. Is that unique or have big sharks been hunting flying creatures for millions of years? The answer is yes, they have. We now know sharks were hunting flying animals as long as 80 million years. And with that fun image in your head, uh, we are going to wrap up for tonight. Uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.